Good morning, Bond. So take it away. Yeah, no worries, mate. Um, you blokes must be hard up for some content, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. To get me on here, but um, that's fine. I just want all the listeners to know that I'm dressed up in my best flannelette shirt as well. So um, Yeah, that's good. A boy from the bush. Magnificent. Um, <laughs> what can I say about myself? Probably uh, not much, to be honest. I, um, okay, thanks I, for being I, on the line. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Best interview ever. Yeah. Um, I grew up in South Australia. Don't hold that against me. But um, uh, I sort of lived in Adelaide a little while as a kid. And uh, originally from Mount Gambia, we moved back down to Mount Gambia. And so I've always sort of been a regional, you know, kid. Um, when I left school when I was 15... I left school, I'd say, I didn't finish year 11 at school. And from there, I worked on a farm for a while. Uh, lived in a big old house by myself. And after that, I, I went and worked on, in a meatworks on a slaughter floor for three and a half years, which is pretty hard grind for pretty crap money. And uh, I went for a job with the Electricity Trust of South Australia, which is like your old SAC <laughs> or your power core. And become a trainee linesman and I finished that course so um, that took four years and I met a lovely lady who's still with my life now and uh, we decided that we didn't want to stay in Mount Gambia so I joined the Navy and she was going to follow me wherever I went after that and so I joined the Navy and did a uh, like an adult traineeship as an electrician uh, stayed in the Navy for uh, six years uh, what did you do? Where were you based I, in the Navy, Bonds? Where uh, you... In the beginning, I was at Cerberus. Yep. Then I went and worked down at uh, Westhead Gunning Range down at Flinders, and that was the best posting I've ever had. That was just a, a great place to work. Wish I bought Landy. But um, <laughs> after that, I went and lived in Sydney, and I was on a couple of ships and a couple of shore bases. And uh, Sharon was uh, pregnant, so we decided that being away all the time because we used to be at sea for a lot, long time. It wasn't a good thing for the family, so I, we, we left the Navy and moved back to South Australia and I spent about four or five years in the wilderness, I call it, um, in City Street. And I just didn't connect. I just, you know, being, as you can understand, being in a uniform, people sort of like think differently to, to cities and... Um, I was living in Mount Gambia, and they have it. We used to get like Victorian television, even though I was in South Australia. But they had uh, for coppers in Victoria, and I thought, oh, I'll have a crack at that, not thinking I'd get in. And lo and behold, you got in. Yeah, I got in. Yeah, bad luck for Victoria. Eh? How old were you then, Bot? Um, I was actually pretty old. I was thirty-five, which uh, I know that's not old now compared to a lot of people, but uh, I was a bit older than everyone else. Although there was one. There was one guy that was 50 in my intake. What was he doing at 50? That was, was 48. What were they doing? But I, I don't know. But, but um, they'd, obviously they'd be out by now. But, um, yeah, I was 35. I was still pretty fit and raring to go. And, mate, I, I loved it. I, I remember going to the academy and um, I was freak, freaking out because I actually joined from interstate. So I used to, you know, I, I had to live at the academy. But I remember sitting there going, 
Jesus, there's all these coppers in the room, but they were only trainees. <laughs> the, the sergeant was a copper, and I, you know, I was one of those guys that see the coppers and sort of like duck his head and walk the other way. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I just loved everything about the police, and yeah. But I, I'll put it out there: I didn't, I didn't have any uh, ambition, you know, to to do this or do that or save the world. I, I honestly joined because I missed that family life as in the brother and sisterhood that you have in the services. I missed that and I joined the police. Yeah. Just to get that. What so, year what year did you go to the Academy, Bonds? Uh two thousand one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was two thousand and one because I remember being there when um nine eleven happened and yep. seeing all that happen on the on the T V. If you imagine then it was the the Academy was full. It was absolutely chockers, and the dining room was absolutely chockers every day, you know. And there was that, uh, you know, all the plebs went down the, down the back. walk of shame. They had to go to the back tables. Yep. And, and it was a very noisy place, and they wheeled in this big old um, large-screen TV, and you could have heard a pin drop. It was just, People were just glued to the telly. And then I thought, this shit's about to get real, you know, like the plane's going into the buildings. It's not just about... <laughs> Joining the coppers for the brotherhood and the sisterhood, it's you know you you know this is this is probably going to be the new norm. Seeing disasters and yep, so yeah. And from there, I I was sort of like um, I've always been like a country copper because my family was interstate, and so I took the option to escape the ballot by actually going to the bush because I thought, well, I don't have to then relocate. And I only had like, school, like small school age boys, but relocate to say Melbourne just to, and being ex Navy, it was like there was where you got sent is where you went, there's no questions asked. So I had that mentality, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll get to a Melbourne place, and then I'll end up having a gay bush or somewhere else, and having to relocate. And there was a few changes in our life, and we'd already moved around a fair bit up until I joined the Navy. I uh, joined the police, sorry. But, um, yeah, so I went to the bush and loved it and went to one the opposite side of Victoria and and then I've, I moved back over. And I'm in, I'll say straight up, I'm in Warrnambool, so it's a bit closer to me. Gambia is only two hours away and that's where both of our families are from. Yeah, nice part of the world down there too. <laughs> Very windy, but, yeah, it's a good, yeah. it is. Warrnambool's a great little town, so. So did you find the, the, the um, relationship between the... the you say the brother and the sisterhood was similar to the navy as to the coppers. Yeah, in a in a way, the the, the only difference was that you, you sort of you didn't live on the ship or you went home over night time, and and that was good for me because I had a small family and that sort of what fitted yeah. what I wanted to do. So you weren't away for extended periods like weeks or months, but the brother it was it was a good thing, you know, like you get in, there was a lot of banter and. You know, the penny dropped pretty on that, um, you know, coppers are just normal people. They, they they bleed, they cry, they hurt, you know, they have emotions. They see the funny side of things, but um, they keep turning up to work and having to deal with the same old crap day in, day out. They're, they're, they're not just ordinary. They're actually really good, extraordinary people. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, there's always, with, with all big organisations, there's some that you... Yeah, you get along with, and you think, "Oh, yeah, no worries." But I'll probably won't have a beer of you after work. <laughs> most, most of them, uh, you know, are just um, 
great people and, you know, you have a laugh and some of the stories that the older coppers would say, you know, I just sit there and I'd be giggling away, you know, the whole time. Yeah. No. Just a, a question there, Bonds. And I've got a few mates that um, were in the Navy and got out and, you know, a couple of them are quite unwell. And one of the discussions we had one day was about the fact that, you know, when you guys are away on the ships or away on deployments or, you know, you get a land-based deployment overseas, as a few of these guys did, is is there a difference, do you reckon, between – or what is the difference, I suppose, is you're away, you're with your, your, your workmates, your brotherhood, call it what you want, for months, months and months at a time, whatever it is. So that becomes a new norm. But in that policing environment, when you're – policing and then you go home that night and so you're, you're trying to switch off and then get to the to the family normal and then next day you go back to work so you've got to switch back onto that work mode. What's your thoughts on that? As a, <coughs> uh, I suppose I'm offering it out there as an idea. What do you reckon about that? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really great question and, and it's one that I've actually answered um, a lot of times um, to, to people. Okay, when you go away in the Navy, or I can't speak for the Army, the Air Force, but when you go away, whatever happens, you're there and it, you're not back in your own living room or, or at the tea table with the wife and kids or the husband and kids or whatever. So you, you debrief it and the excitement, as I say, the excitement or the adrenaline dissipates. With, with police... <clears throat> And I can only speak for my, my own personal thing, but you go and see something horrific and absolutely tragic and you knock off and within an hour or so you're sitting home and you're eating tea with, you know, little kids and your wife and they, they'll say, you know, what do you do today, Dad? Do you catch a crook or whatever? And you go, yep, no worries. And, and But the adrenaline's there and your mind is just rushing, absolutely thinking. It. You, you can't just totally switch off. If there's a copper that can actually switch off and not and, and not let it affect them, good luck to them. But I, I think they'd be very rare. I think most people would have to keep thinking about it. So you don't get to debrief. You don't get to... Get it out of your system. You don't get to sit around in a huddle and whether you break down and cry or you have a beer, whatever, whatever is good for you, it's still in your soul. And as you said, you're back to work sometimes within eight hours. Other times, you know, it might be 16 hours later. But you're back to work and you really don't get to process it. And yeah. bang, something else happens. And, yeah. and so you're just layering. It's that old saying, you know, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Well, that's a really good analogy for police because the straw gets loaded on them all the time. And it might not be something horrific, but it might be an added pressure from having to get something done on time or having to be here, be there or whatever like that. They're layers of straw. So you, when you do have something that you just – can't deal with the current process. That's probably why a lot of people break. How was your wife with uh, with all these bonds? Was she, um, you know, you say it kept layering up. Were you able to talk to her or how did yeah, that happen? Mate, she, I can't speak all enough of this lady. She's like, um, I suppose like most partners in for the emergency services, they put up with a lot. They, they But she could see that... I was getting damaged each time and she was telling me, you know, like, you should slow down, you should do this. And 
I think it was just a matter of time. She knew that I was going to obviously break at some point. But um, as far as support goes, I mean, I am so lucky compared to a lot of other people that I have such a, a great partner. Like she's fantastic, and she's always been like that with the Navy. And, and I've, I've had a like other experience. I've had a bit of cancer in my, in my time as well, and so we've been through the middle a bit there. And she was again like. You know, an elephant stamp and a gold star. You couldn't. She was just fantastic. So without her, I don't know where I'd be. She'd sort of slap me around and put me in the gear and say, you know, it's not time to start sucking. It's time to start doing something good for yourself. And or she'd say, yeah, now it's time to. You can have a bit of a soup because that's not a good thing. You know, you have a soup, get it out of your system, and away you go. But. So the second part of the answer would be for your question. I, I, I would really love that um, all police stations, and I know it's not feasible, but all police stations had a dedicated space, like a room that, that yeah, it might be attached to the police station, but it's not the police station. And it's a room where maybe you can have a beer. I know you're not allowed to have that stuff, but but have all the trophies and have all the pictures and shields and stuff on the wall of all the past coppers and funny things, you know. And so it's a bit like a club rooms. And people walk in the door and if they're having a beer, they sign away their car keys. You know, they, they're not allowed to take their car keys. They've already pre-booked a taxi. So that, that takes away the I'm driving home. But they can sit there and even just even if there's no alcohol, just have a cup of coffee and, or a cool drink and sit there and, and have a chat, watch a bit of TV and, and like a play a game of pool and get it out of your system. Have a talk about it. And and not not as police officers, but as mates. You know what I mean? And, and I think that would really help a lot of the stresses down. I know in a regional town, we don't have obviously anything like that, but... To go to the pub and debrief with your mates, everyone knows that you're a copper. So when you do go to the pub, everyone sort of like loves to listen in. You know, you can see their heads sort of like tip closer to you, yeah. and their ears turn around to face you, so they can listen to what you're saying. Um, so we sort of head up to the RSL because you know, like diggers are, they, they say, "Oh, that's the coppers." They just they understand what we're doing. You know what I mean? They're not interested mm. in what we're doing. They mm. just they just, yep, they're over there for a reason. But there's not really that many places to go. But, oh, you know, oh, I just wish there was a a club rooms that, that were maybe in a hub somewhere and a few suburbs could attend it or whatever. But it'd be really nice, I think. Yeah, I suppose the old police club was like that to a degree um, behind Russell Street back in the old days, Mick. Um, yeah, you, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was before my time, but I've uh, had a lot of blokes tell me about this police club, mm. and I thought, what a cracking idea! You know, I don't know why it, why it ended, but I mean, it's a place where coppers can go and they can feel safe, and and if they do have a bit of a meltdown, other coppers are there to to support them and get them home, and you know what I mean? They're not doing it in public, they're yeah. not doing it on the train on the way home, and they're not you know thinking about it in the car or you know. But it's an, but it's also not just there to debrief. It's there to build relationships and and feel good. You know, I've got a place. This is my club rooms. This is where I can go. This is this is what it's all about. You know, the RSL. Well, 
do it well. I'm not a great lover of the pokies, but I'll put that one out there. But, um, you know, the smaller, I know the smaller RSLs really do that well because they're still focused on the veterans. Yeah, and that's it. And, like, I live in Lara up here, and uh, we've got a great RSL. And, um, yeah, I was junior vice president a couple of years ago, and it's really good just to get in there. It's only small, like, a whole 50 people, and just get in there and uh, – you can just chat, and there's some coppers in there. A lot of, you know, obviously a lot of vets, and it is. You can just sit there and not worry about too much. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a good place. So, how long did you stay in the job, Bonds? Oh, eighteen years. Um, and as I say, I, 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 when I got to the academy, I know that the first couple of days, everyone had to stand up in their suit and say their name and introduce themselves to to the rest of the, you know, the intake and everyone was going, I'm so-and-so and I want to join the CI. Someone wanted to be, you know, the TOG and then the SOG and Socket and, all, you know, all these different things. I stood up and said, I'm Mick and all I want to be is a police officer. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd, I had no great, grand designs, you know. I just thought, if I get through this, I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah. Take it one step at a time. But I, I um I loved everything about the van. To me, I'd stick there, and I'm, people might disagree with me, but I I personally think that the person on the van should get the highest amount of money. Yeah. You know, they should, and they have to know basically so much about everything. You know, and they, they deal with the angriest people, the saddest people. You know, and I love that whole thing. Someone told me it's like a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. And largely that's true. And um, I ended up getting a, um, uh, a melanoma and, and that was obviously malignant. And I had a lot of major surgery in my back and my neck. And my then sort of career basically come to abrupt end because I couldn't move my, my neck and my head very well. I kept getting bad headaches and... And then at that same time, they started up the crime desks in uh, regional Victoria. And my senior sergeant, she just said to me, have you ever thought about going to the you know, crime scene and I, the crime desk? And I thought, oh, I don't, don't want to sit behind the desk. That would kill me. Or, you know. yeah. And she sort of slapped me around and said, it's <laughs> not a desk, you idiot. You're actually you're going out. You're expected to, to go and process the crime scenes, but you're also a bit of a van jockey as well. And so I went there. Not kicking and screaming, but I, I went there thinking, well, you know, this is going to be boring. But then the penny dropped, you know. I, it was like in a regional area, I, I could go and play van person as much as I wanted to. And we, we used to a fair bit because um, there's only one van and a lot of times there was no van. And so you're the only unit available. So you end up going to do all the jobs. And, and um, yeah, so I, I actually loved it, you know. And so I did that for... A, you know, a, a fair chunk of my career. But having said that, that also worked out <laughs> the other way around too because my area of response was the South Australian border um, right through to between um, Apollo Bay and Lawn on the on the coast. Wow. And, and it, it included Colac and Lismore and the southern Grampians right through to the border. So, you know... I, Every sort of fatal or like, or not every, but most fatals or suicides and that, you, you sort of, you'd end up going to if you could. You know, there were some that you, you 
you you wouldn't be able to get to, but most of the times you do, you're a bit of a filter, like a catchment, and so that was probably to my detriment. But um, I think that they sort of changed that now. They they don't go to as much, which hopefully they don't. Mm. But yeah, and, and and in the bush, there's a lot of high speeds, and so there's a lot of fatalities. You know, like um, where we. You, you don't have the, the hustle and bustle of the city and all the, the sketchy drug dealers, you know, that are on every corner, so to speak. And um, But there's a lot of, um, you know, road trauma and other things. So in the end, Bonds, what um, what got you out? Like you, you left without going into, you know, prying into too much, mate. What um, caused you to walk away? Well... I was one of those guys that was literally like the old ten foot tall and bulletproof, yep. and I, I I I would turn up to a scene and where others would be sort of like have the grim look on their face. Oh, mate, I, I'd turn up eating something, thinking how could this? And I I had the black humour, you know. It was like I was one of those cheap comedians that just had a, you know like a like a, a bag of uh, really lame jokes and. I'd be bringing them out all the time, and people would probably look and think this guy's never going to break. He must be um, made of steel or whatever. But I, I remember going to a uh, well, a bus crash. It was a school bus, and I got hit by a truck, and the truck was doing 100 k's an hour, and it t-boned this school bus with a heap of primary school kids on it, and that was out in the bush. And um, a lot of kids got hurt. No one actually died. Right, and but a lot of kids got hurt quite seriously, and there was a a good, you know, ten minute drive when it should have taken probably a half an hour to get there. I won't say anymore. And when I turned up, it was like an absolute Mad Max movie disaster zone. And from there, you know, I, I, I tell people, try and explain to people what it's like to be a police officer. Said, if you can imagine how much chaos was there, it, it, it was unbelievable. And because it was such a small little rural area, the the old grapevine, all the mums and the dads started turning up because their kids didn't come home and they heard about this bus crash. So they turned up to the scene and people were just screaming. It was just and that guttural sound. And I don't want to trigger anyone, but. Um, Imagine the chaos, and then after all the helicopters had left, taking kids to hospital, and I was left there with a couple of other coppers to guard the scene, and it was absolutely, again, you could beat a pin drop. You know, it was just so quiet, and you just you're starting to really think about what happened, but the bus is still in situ, the truck is still in situ, and you're still looking at it, and and after not much sleep, we're back out there again the next day, processing the scene in daylight. And that really got to me at the time, and it started to chip away over the over the years. And being in a regional town, there's a lot of raffles and a lot of you know fundraising for these kids and their families, and it always hit the news. And and so the local newspaper was like the Herald Sun. You know, you'd see it all the time and it was on the TV or you you couldn't help but see it. And it, it just constantly reminded me all the time of what was going on. And, and then after that, 
I just had a big spate of just going to everything. But there was a few other incidents that started to really get to me. And, um, you know, my uh, suit of armour started to get chinks in it, you know. Like, oh, I started to get a bit wobbly. And um, But I had a, 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 my – I try and describe my PTSD like um, how soldiers, they go to war and then never satisfied or – or settled when they come home. They need to go back to war. I was, I had a really bad sort of like way of thinking of things. I would, I would honestly drive around in the, in the, in the, you know, police vehicle and I'd be waiting for something to happen. And once it happened, I felt I was normal again. And that's a really bad thing. And when things were quiet, I started to think about all the other stuff. So the way I understand it is when there's a scene or, or an incident, I only have to process that, you know, and so my mind's, even though it's tragic, my mind's focused on getting the job done. So it's a bit bit of mindfulness there, you know, you're thinking about what you have to do and making sure this is done, that's done, they've been notified or you've got all these different things happening. But when that stops, all the other bad things creep in as well. And so it's like if you look at one television that's all you have to concentrate on. But if you have half a dozen TVs in the room and try and watch them all at once, your mind starts to get really, really, you know, sore and you just can't process everything. And that's what was happening to me. And a couple of incidents happened and I had a bit of a bit of a breakdown. I went to the GP and I remember sitting in front of this GP and I was just for about 20 minutes and I couldn't speak. And he was a really good GP. And he could tell that I just wasn't in a good space. And he said, you know, I want you to have time off, da-da-da-da. And I said, no, I can't do it. I've got to go back to work because if I don't go back to work and then my mates are going to be left carrying the can. That old, you know, like, can't let your mates down. I went back to work for 12 months and then I started to, really wobble bad and, and um, I went back to the same GP and he said, yep, I didn't think you'd last 12 months. I thought you'd be here within two days. But And then I, I sort of never went back to work after that. But I did, I really did want to go back to work. I, I was one of those guys, no, I'll, I'll go and do this course and chill you right, you know. But um, and everyone told me, I don't think you'll ever ever go back, mate. You're a bit, you're a bit on the loose cannon side. But um it's worked out good for me now. I, I feel pretty good. So I suppose the obvious question you just touched on then, your headspace now in a different place and you've received support treatment from um, medical professionals? Yeah, I, 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 I went and I actually did the 10-step GP program uh, by myself and that's like to go and see a psychologist and... And then she explained to me, perhaps this needs to be, you know, a work cover thing. And, and then I went down the work cover route. And it, it was pretty good. I, you know, Gallagher Bassett accepted it straight away. And um, I, when I went off work, I was in a really, really bad way. And this psychologist said to me, there's uh, a program at the Geelong Clinic. And because I'm out west, you know, I'm not in, yep. in the centre and, and there's other programs in Melbourne um, would you want to have a go? And I remember sitting here one, one day and I was absolutely just beside myself. I just you know, no one was home 
I was shaking, just didn't know where I was going. I didn't even think I'd be around, you know, in five minutes' time. That's how bad I was. I uh, picked up the phone and I rang a lady at the Geelong Clinic who was the facilitator of the course, and she could obviously see that I was not in a good space. Mm. And she said, oh, I want to see you in the next couple of days. Please come. And I went down and I seen her and um, she said, I have one spot left. It's yours. And I went to the Geelong Clinic. And uh, and at that stage, there was four coppers and four soldiers. It used to be a, a just a military one, but yep. I started to allow first responders on the And I totally enjoyed the course. It was it was really really um, you know, heartbreaking to listen to other people's stories, not your own, you know. Yep. But uh, it, it really helped me understand what was happening to me. You know, people say PTSD, this thing, da da da, but it but it goes into details of you know why do you feel this way? This is what's happening to your body physically, you know, your brain physically, and and, and I say that people. You know, they sort of give you a toolbox and a heap of tools and they show you once how to use them. It's up to you to sort of learn how to use those tools to try and keep PTSD at bay. So, mate, you've progressed on from there. Obviously, you're back home. I mean, it must have been – I'm just listening to your story. I'm thinking of you know, the impact on your family at that particular time. They could have seen you – seen all this unravelling and, like you say, your wife's fantastic um, watching what's happening and – like you say, you're still married, so something um, obviously worked out pretty good. But I know you're fairly handy with the woodwork. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, um, well, a bit of a segue into that. I, when I was on the course, I I could stop shaking. If you would have seen me, my legs would just would violently shake and my hands would start shaking. And um, I picked up a pen and I started to draw you know, I'd start, and then all of a sudden, looking at my hand, I noticed that my hand stopped shaking. And then I realised my leg had stopped shaking. And so I kept drawing. And, and then I sort of thought, well, maybe that's a good thing. And I put the two together, the mindfulness and the drawing. And then I started to do a bit of painting. I actually started off painting and and pretty pretty ordinary sort of painting. But <laughs> I, I, I got into that. But I've always loved woodwork and and doing things and I got onto YouTube and I used to watch people make things and then um, one of the guys that I was following on wood on, on and it carves wood and I thought geez I wouldn't mind one of those but it, you have to hook up a computer to it and work out all these programs and all that sort of stuff and I, I kept going and, and after I I basically got <laughs> kicked out of big pole you know like you, you're ill health retired I didn't get a choice so I got told it's it's all over camp. But I thought, well, let's buy this machine and, and have a play with it. And what I wanted to do initially was learn how to paint portraits of people. And I was going to send portraits of, uh, you know, fallen members and soldiers and that to the family. Although I'll never get good at painting portraits. They'll look at it and go, geez, I don't want to put this up on me wall. I'll chuck it in the bin. Then I thought, well, maybe if I make some plaques and stuff, and then I, I can sort of send something to a, to a person that might be, you know, struggling. And so my wife said, do that. That's the best thing ever. And and I must say, 
that once I got this machine, and I, I made myself because I never got a, a thing from Warnable to say you spent 14 years here. You know, I made myself a, a, a little flag with a thin blue line on it, and I showed another copper, and he said, "I want one of those," and I said, "Oh yeah, I'll make you one." And then, uh, you know, Rob probably won't mind me saying, Rob Atkins said he wanted one, so I made him one, and then I've, they've obviously put a Facebook page, and people want them. And just having that there got me out of the lounge room watching funeral insurance adverts on TV, thinking this is crap, I can't wait for my wife to get home, to going out into the shed. And now I work seven days a week, at least six hours a day in my shed doing stuff. I, I have gone from being, you know, like being a PTSD victim to a person who has reinvented himself in a way. Doesn't mean to say I don't have nightmares. I don't have bad thoughts. Even while I'm doing the machine, I still think about stuff. But I don't think about it as long because I've got other stuff to do. And it's been good. And the best part about that is I used to sit back and, and watch people, you know, the, what they'd say and things on Code 9. And at first I, I just thought, hey, what's this Code 9 thing all about? You know, like, yeah, yeah, I'll just watch that. You know, even though I was in a bad way. But I remember looking at it and I think that's answered my question. That person has asked a question that I have, but I can't ask anyone else because I'm, I'm way out west. And all of a sudden, bang, 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 four or five other coppers have got on there and said, yep, that happened to me. You go here, you go there. It's not that bad. You know, like IMEs and that. And I thought, well, this is not a bad idea, this buddy Code 9 thing. It's, it's all right. And But I always... Was very quiet. I never said anything on there, and and as I say, I got outed by a couple of other blokes putting, you know, the, the plaques on the on the Facebook page. But I must say, in the last say two or three months since I've been making all these things, I've spoken to so many uh, members, and I've never met. I don't even know what they look like to be honest. But there's that real connection. And, and I know in myself, if I'm having a bad day, I could just text them and say, how are you going? And they'll have a chat with me, you know. I I've, I think it's the best thing, <laughs> really. Kudos to, to Mark Thomas and, and everyone else who set up this Facebook page because it is a really good thing. And, you know, last night, I won't go into the details, but people would know that was a, a classic example of the, the brother and sisterhood coming together to look after one of the members, you know. It was really good. Well, Brett and Bonds, I reckon that's probably a good mate. good place to end it. Um, so, Bonds, uh, thanks, mate. That, uh, for sterling interviewers like uh, Brett and I are, we just shut up didn't and let you do it. You? Yeah, yeah, mate, it was great. It was fantastic, mate. I, I've never uh, – I don't think I've listened to such an eloquent story for a long, long time. So good luck to you, mate. Um, no worries, and uh, and I'll put it out there. Like, um, I'll, I'll make a rod for me own back here. I know that, but uh, I've said to a couple of other members that I've spoken to, if there's someone that you know that's having a really rough time, you know, like, and they're down on their luck, and I mean, just let me know, and I'll make something, and send it to them. Might not be perfect, but I'll, I'll just, I don't want any money. But I'll pay the postage. I don't care. Right. Uh, that's I, great. I, I don't want. I don't want any recognition for it. I mean, they'll just get it in the mail and, and 
just so they know that someone else, and in fact, not just someone else, but lots of other people are thinking about them. You know? And I think that's the thing. Uh, once people realise that, that old, whoever come up with the, the, the phrase, you know, you're never alone, just hit the nail on the head because I did feel alone here in the West because I'm not in amongst I, everyone else in the city, you know. I'm not within – I know you can't do it near the COVID, but I can't – I can't just go and have a cup of coffee willy-nilly. I've got a few blokes that I do that with, but I do feel really connected to a lot of people, more so now in the last three months than I did in the last bloody 18, 20 years, you know. Uh, that's great, mate. That's, 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 that's a really good message. Um, yeah. All right, Bonds. Well, mate, thank you so much for bring, being on, uh, I don't know what our podcast is called yet, Mick. It's uh, Brett uh, and Mick. Well, <laughs> we better come up with a uh, name, buddy. Yeah. Uh, and, mate, we'll, um, good luck with it all. And, yeah, if uh, if people want to get hold of you, they can jump on the uh, Facebook page and yeah. get hold of you there. No worries. And, I mean, hopefully next next week or whenever you do an O and you get someone more interesting than me. Nah, mate, you, right, you're I'll tell excellent. you what, if, we get, if we're going to have a, uh, a score out of 10, you're sitting at about 9.2 at the moment. Yeah. So, um, the others must have been pretty sick. Uh, you're yeah. the first one, mate. mate don't worry about it. You, you've set the bar high, Bonds. <laughs> <laughs> All right, eh? All right. All right. All right. Catch you, no man. No worries.